This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're delighting in the creepy, the spooky, the skin-crawling aspects of food history and culture. Give yourself over to man's more hedonistic tendencies and you wouldn't be making it to the great beyond. The Sin Eater's job was to ensure that you did. In modern horror, audiences have been captivated by the isolation, mystery, and terror of rural life. And so one of these preparations is is actually taking oak bark, stuffing it into a cow skull, and burying that cow skull in a creek for a year. I would argue that their evil went hand in hand with their marketing strategy. I'm not saying they had an excuse, but in order to make bananas work, they were deluded. They had to do these terrible things. Listen to Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liud, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so excited to welcome to the studio none other but Paul Willis. Uh, Paul is a fourth-generation hog farmer in Iowa, and he is, of course, the founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Paul, thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. All the way from Iowa. Yes. Just for this interview. Yeah, just... Got up from the farm, <laughs> came here. Here I am. Oh, I was so excited to have you. Um, okay, so let's let's um, jump right in. I've got about a mini, million questions for you, of course. Um, can you start with giving us an overview of the company? Because you are the founder specifically of the pork company, but Nyman has much more than just pork, right? Beef and lamb, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to pork. So... Uh, I was raising uh, a substantial number of uh, pasture-raised pigs, and um, probably in the 80s, even into the 90s, we had something that came to be known as uh, factory farming, CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, started moving in into the state of Iowa. Mm-hmm. We were told we should get b- bigger or get out. and. Yep. Um, uh, we were being squeezed in the marketplace, and, and this was about the time I started looking for a uh, market. And it, it kind of goes back to the fact that I, I met a woman in a, a store in California buying a, uh, an organic chicken, and I, she was paying about three times the price of uh, commodity chicken. And I asked her why. She said, well, it tastes better. There uh, you go. And, uh, you know, li- I like the way it's raised and the way it's treated. And I'm thinking, you know, if... If you have free-range chicken, why shouldn't you have free-range uh, pigs? So I looked around for um, really actually a number of years. There were there were people that wanted to buy a pork chop or a, a loin or this and that, but I wasn't raising pork chops. I was raising pigs. And uh, so eventually, uh, through a friend of mine, I met Bill Nyman in San Francisco, and he understood immediately what this was about, that I was... I was uh, raising a, substan- a substantial number of animals and that I uh, was looking for a market. And uh, he was, he was uh, at this time, had started uh, a meat company called Nyman Shell. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Anyway, we, uh, we hit it off and uh, I, I went back to Iowa and I sent some uh, samples just out of the freezer mm-hmm. and places that went to like a uh, Chez Panisse, uh, Alice Waters restaurant, some of the, some of those type of uh, upscale restaurants that, uh, you know, they they tried the the product and they were uh, very enthused about the the eating quality, and then of course the what I was doing was uh, it hadn't been emphasized so much that that animal welfare uh, was a was a credential that you wanted to have on your you know what it was you were doing because it, it in the past it had been uh, 
you know, kind of commonplace. It was something that was disappearing, yeah, it's, it's really. It's how we, it's how animals used to be raised. Right. It was, so it, uh, we were kind of like changing food by not changing food. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so how did that, how did the process kind of work with the combining of the companies? Okay. You're, you're jumping ahead. Uh, <laughs> I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> uh, uh, around 20 years. Oh, I meant I met with you and with Bill. Oh, in, yeah, originally, yeah. Well, we're going to get to the other one, yeah. Okay, so, uh, well, uh, we were excited about it. I had to figure out how does it work. Mm-hmm. Bill said, uh, you know, uh, the pork needs to be here five thirty Monday morning. How does that happen? How does a live animal get from your farm in Iowa to San Francisco? And and so I I uh, contacted. Uh, a packing plant and I said you know uh, I had customers that were interested in the West Coast that were that wanted uh, pork from my farm would they help me out and we figure out how to custom do the custom processing and uh, the logistics how to get it there and and so it was just doing your homework and figuring out uh, what day did the animals have to be there and you know the the animals were uh, slaughtered and then the carcasses hang and they have to be chilled and then they the breaking takes place cutting them into primal cuts mm-hmm. has to get on a truck and it takes a couple of days to get to the west coast and and we we did it the first time in february of 95 okay and i shipped 30 pigs that was the beginning wow 30 pigs 30 pigs and yeah. uh what is what are those numbers like today well uh just to fill in the in the middle a little bit, we uh, I I could see that I needed more farmers besides myself, and uh, I, I was involved in writing the protocol how the animals should be raised, which is uh, they're commonly used for uh, various welfare organizations at third party uh, uh, auditing and this kind of thing. It's it's very similar to what's being used today, but but anyway, uh, little by little, we added more farmers. Mm-hmm. And if we paid a premium price to our farmers, and if they were meeting the you know the criteria, also we about 2002 we went to a no antibiotic ever wow. uh, program, which is you hear a lot about that today, but we were way ahead of that. Way ahead, of, yeah. And uh, so today we have uh, about 600 hog farmers, and then we also have beef uh, people raising. Uh, beef on mm-hmm. ranches and then we have some people raising lamb so there's in the Nyman Ranch network there's about 760 farmers and ranchers today okay and what percentage of those where is the breakdown in terms of product so is it about 50 50 ish between beef and pork or? yes between the beef and the pork uh, of course a beef is a bigger animal you know mm-hmm. but if as far as the uh, the pounds, the dollars, and so on—it's—it it falls in there somewhere. Okay. The lamb is a small part of the business. Okay. Um, and so you said, I want to. There's a couple things that you that you brought up. The first is the animal welfare standards. So, did you craft those yourself when looking for other farmers to join your network, or is that something you contributed to more broadly from a policy perspective? I actually met uh, Diane Halverson, who was working for the Animal Welfare Institute. Mm-hmm. And um, they had attempted to have uh, uh, to write some standards and have that a part of a, a, a process, and they were really kind of uns- I have to say unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing this out of Minnesota, but they maybe the market or the or the grocery stores they were working with were they just weren't ready for it at the time. But uh, she'd already been involved in crafting the. Uh, you know, kind of the outline for what what the uh, animal welfare uh, should look like. And and my attitude was, you know, come on down to the farm, take a look, see what I'm doing. If I'm not doing it right, let's get it right. Mm-hmm. And so you, and so these were practices you already had, you already had been using. On my farm, uh, it was almost a perfect fit because so, I was raising pasture raised outdoor pigs with bedding, mm-hmm. lots of space. What's uh, lots of space mean? Uh, I mean, I the, most of the pigs are raised out on a twenty-acre field. 
Okay, that's a lot of space. I mean, they're free range running. <laughs> okay, you know, yeah. I'm raising like three thousand pigs a year. Okay, um, we had a barns and different different uh, setups for different times of the year, but but they all included uh, uh, bedding and and or free range pasture. Okay, and no antibiotics. That came. We didn't really have a policy on that initially, but it was kind of no subtherapeutic mm-hmm. antibiotics. What we found was the customer could not understand that at all. Right. And uh, we just decided to go to no antibiotics ever. Mm-hmm. At that time, uh, feed companies that sold uh, baby pig feed mm-hmm. all had antibiotics in their feed. You yeah. had to special wow. order feed without antibiotics because it was so pervasive in the in the entire food chain. In 2002? Yeah. Wow. That is crazy. Well, it was, and you had to pay more. Sure. Wow. To get feed without antibiotics. That is, that is something. Yeah. So when we when we started to do that and started to demand that, that really changed the whole dynamics of the, uh, especially some of the smaller feed companies, because if they wanted to be, um, you know, supplying some of our farmers, they had to. Uh, I mean, they had to adhere to these uh, standards. Yeah, they changed their standards. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, just a question on animal welfare. Do you, and this is, has been, I think, you know, I want to ask you about organic in a, in a minute, but if an animal is sick, it, you know, I guess what's the justification for no antibiotics ever if an animal gets sick? Like, is it more humane well, we, to treat them? or We, we uh, advocate treating an animal with antibiotics if you need to. Mm-hmm. We just can't buy it under our brand. Okay. It has to be marketed a different way. Okay. And identified with an ear tag or something, you know, mm-hmm. so they don't get mixed up. It, it just, uh, uh, we, we, what we've also found out is there, there are really lots of other ways to, to uh, uh, handle uh, uh, health problems that you might have. Mm-hmm. Uh, First of all, you might want to do some testing and find out if there's any, um, some, or some diagnostic work to find out if you have a particular problem. Maybe there's something you can be vaccinating for, right. which is an, immuno, an immunity, uh, uh, not an antibiotic. And um, like, for example, uh, we used to get flu and pneumonia in the fall quite often mm-hmm. uh, when the change of weather would happen, you know. And what we found is that, that if you... Uh, uh, put a, some expectorant and some aspirin in the water, it worked just as well as if you had the antibiotic. Well, I mean, antibiotics don't really work for flus anyways, right? Well, bacterial pneumonia, yes. Bacterial, yes. Yeah, this is bacterial, well, you get yes. flu, and then yes. it would turn into pneumonia. Oh, okay, yes. So, yes, but but uh, the expectorant and the aspirin, uh, the uh, the animal would feel better. They wouldn't have a fever, so they'd get up and eat and drink and everything, yeah. and they would... Uh, uh, you know, or uh, uh, using uh, apple cider vinegar in the feed to change the pH of the feed can help with some of the gut problems. Huh. So there's, there, we've do, we've done quite a few things to look into more of the alternative right. methods of of handling some of these situations, other than just dumping antibiotics at right, at which the animals. is way healthier. So your animals are, I mean, it seems like pretty close to being raised organically, but they're not because the feed is not organic, right? The feed, uh, to be certified organic, you'd have to feed all organically certified feed. Mm-hmm. So on my farm, for example, we do raise uh, some organic feed, but that's sold directly and it goes into the human food chain. Okay. So uh, it brings about three times the money mm-hmm. compared to commodity uh, crops. And... Um, so, you know, about 60 to 80% of the cost of raising a pig is feed. And so you... I did not know that. You, you increase 300% the cost of feed. Yeah. It makes a pretty big difference of what you need in the marketplace. Right. And, and some people might want like an organic pork chop or a certain cut. But, you know, as I said before, the animal... You're, you have to market all of it. You got to use all of it. So you have to it. have a premium price for everything to make it work. Right. So you, people don't necessarily want an organic... Ears. Ears. 
Um, yeah, I could see there not being as high of a demand for that. Um, so that <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we live in a world where people forget that, I think, um, like pork chop comes from a pork and it's attached to an entire animal, right? There's very... Yeah, it's, it's comes from the, off the back of the, of the animal. Yeah, yeah, I think that people, I think maybe they're, you know, they don't, I think it's just not a top mm-hmm. of mind. It's an entire animal this came from. Um, okay, so I, I want to talk for a minute about the, the farmers that you work with. Can you um, just kind of give us some general information about what your farmers sure. look like? Yeah. Um, our farmers own and take care of their livestock. And if they, they meet our uh, animal welfare criteria and uh, it's raised with a, uh, no antibiotics, mm-hmm. no, uh, it's a vegetarian diet, and if they meet the standards, we pay a premium price. And we also do, uh, uh, you know, we have a veterinarian on staff. If they have problems, they can ha- help them. Qu- we, uh, quick question. I don't mean, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you said vegetarian diet. Um, is that typical for uh, raising pork? I mean, certainly. Well, in I would the imagine. past, uh, uh, oftentimes meat and bone meal, even fish meal, and these right. type of things were used in in hog feed. Right. And uh, uh, there's there's different reasons not to use those. Uh, mad cow disease was a, that was a problem. A big scare. <laughs> it, it, it was seemed to be coming from consuming animals that were. Um, the same the brain and yeah. the spinal cord and so on from beef and uh, I, I it was just something that we wanted to do that with uh, with pork as well we didn't think it was appropriate to be feeding parts of other animals to you know even though we know that a, a pig eats lots of things they yeah. are, they're uh, they are omnivores right Yes, truly. But I had um, I had interviewed a woman um, who um, uh, works at the ASPCA, for instance, and runs their animal farm animal welfare program. And she was mm-hmm. explaining how, like, vegetarian fed chickens, for instance, isn't ideal for chickens because they eat like you know worms and bugs and all these other kind yeah. of things like in the field and nature. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I just had a question kind of about how that applies to your to your animals. It's primarily driven by the mad cow disease. Yeah. I mean, different kinds of, yeah, different kinds uh, of animals, I would say. uh, You know, um, I mean, I have my own chickens, and I let them out in the morning. The first thing, they run out, and they eat as many worms as they can find, especially after a rainy day. Yeah. Or rainy night. And, and, you know, I'm well aware of that. But um, anyway, that's the policy. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot of the, um, the, the animal protein was from tankage, it was processed. Uh, yeah, it's not ideal. Um, uh, meat and bone meal, things like this that came from animals or it's a surplus that comes out of the packing plant. Yeah. Um, and it's ground up and it's cooked and pre- prepared and everything. It, should be, it, it shouldn't be carrying any diseases or anything like that, but you, you know. Just want to be safe. Precautionary. And, yeah, okay, so that makes, that makes total sense um, in terms of the definition and the standard. Um, so I interrupted you before. You said no use of antibiotics, um, vegetarian fed. What are the other so- sort of standards that your farmers that you work with have to meet in order to work with them? Well, those standards uh, sort of relate to uh, allowing the, 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 the pigs, let's talk about the pigs, mm-hmm. to uh, exhibit their natural behavior. So for example, when a sow is, is about to give birth, they build a nest. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're almost hardwired to do this. Now, if they're living on a concrete floor... It's hard to do that. It's hard to do this. Pretty hard to uh, build a nest uh, out of concrete. Yeah. I've actually seen sows try to get a hold of some garden hose and build a nest. Oh, that like, breaks so, my heart. Yeah. So we require the, the sows to have straw. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they're in a building or they're out in the field, and you know, and then bedding, uh, and then we have we have space requirements. Uh, uh, we we do have barns and hoop buildings and deep bedded systems and everything, but there there are space requirements depending on the size of the animals. Mm-hmm. So they're not overcrowded. That's a good thing. <laughs> That's yeah. Um, definitely not how it is raised in industrial setting right we don't we don't clip uh, teeth 
We don't, uh, I don't, you probably don't know this, but baby pigs are often have their teeth clipped when they're born. What do you mean by clipped? They clip the teeth off. They're like little pointed teeth. Yeah. They clip the tip off the teeth so they don't uh, fight each other and scar each other up on the nose quite so much, but we really found that wasn't necessary, so we, we just don't do that. We don't clip tails. All the pigs that are in confinement buildings have their tails docked. Why? Well, they, they chew the, each other's tails Ugh. because of the... Because they're like in such an unnatural well, they're, they're in environment. Well, they're in a crowded situation and there's stress. Wow. Okay. So, so the, the, the welfare criteria we have is, is to reduce stress. And I mean, in any, and this involves whether you're, uh, whatever you're doing on your farm or the trucking or anything, you want to you reduce uh, uh, stress at all. Mm-hmm. At all points, if you can. That's why we worked with Temple Grandin uh, as well, you know, and she's she's pointed out uh, things that uh, if you're loading pigs, for example, if there's a beam of light shining in the in the chute or something, mm-hmm. we might not even notice that, but the animal notices that, and that would be frightening. Right. Can you just give us a? Can you tell us who Temple Grandin is? Well, Temple Grandin is an animal science person from Colorado State. Uh, there was a movie made about her. Uh, she's autistic herself and, and has a very unique w- uh, way of, of, of understanding what, how animals think and, and, and behave. Mm-hmm. And she's developed uh, uh, all kinds of different handling systems and really some very good tips about uh, working with your animals. Even, even people that have raised animals for a long time. A long time, yeah. almost a lifetime, can learn things from her. Didn't she develop like the process by which many animals are uh, killed, even in like CAFO environments? That is like the most humane for them. Uh, she's well. She's worked with all kinds of animal production systems. Yeah. That is a very diplomatic way of saying, yeah, I mean, but I think that her work was ultimately is very important because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's still end She's of life. She's a big fan of ours, by the way. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure you're, yes, that makes, that makes sense. So you, so you, so you make the transportation process to, uh, you know, much more calming for the animals. Yeah. You want to bedding, make sure the truck isn't cold or hot or, you know, yeah. uh, overcrowded, things like that. So these farmers that you decide to con, uh, do you con you contract with these farmers? Yeah, we have all kinds of different arrangements. Uh, we have uh, we have a number of Amish farmers, probably a third of our farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't do contracts; they do agreements. Okay, kind of a handshake kind of deal. Really? Okay. But we, you know, we 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 do that. So you you um. I mean, they get the same, same kind of deal, but. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would assume, I would assume that, you know, it might be more beneficial for the producer to have some sort of a contract. But if, if an agreement works for them, well, and for you if you're it, counting on their supply, it's a verbal contract, I guess you'd say anyway. Yeah. You know, but, but, and and we have different uh, uh, arrangements for people that raise pigs all year round because, you know, the customer doesn't understand. You can, you know, they want, they want product. Year round, not just uh, in the spring <laughs> yeah. and the fall. Yeah, they want lemons in um, in the yeah. northeast in February. <laughs> so, uh, the it's based on the price of the cost of production, plus a, a, a value on the on your labor and your investment, things like this. Last year, and I, and I have to tell you, right from the beginning, my goal was to distance myself. From the commodity world as far as possible. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted an animal welfare certification, uh, no antibiotics, and be you know be were uh, forward thinking on these issues. Uh, but it was important that that we establish a good price for our farmers. They're not raising huge volumes, so they actually need to make more per pig. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this last year with tariffs and all these kind of things that affected the commodity market quite a bit. Yeah. We were paying uh, almost 100% premium to our farmers. Wow. About twice as much. Wow. That must have been... They were very happy about that. They were, yes, yes. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. But that had to affect the bottom line of the business. Well, we, we always do that. You always it just yeah. it was more dramatic because the tariffs took the commodity market down. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to add something. You said talk a little bit about the farmers. Mm-hmm. Our farmers uh, average 43 years of age. That's young. Young. Farmers in general right now about 59 and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just dropped from 48 to 43. Going in the right direction. So we're going the right direction. <laughs> we have a lot of incentives. Yeah, uh, how do you do that? I mean, uh, we even this past year we gave away breeding stock to be new and beginning farmers. Yeah, about three hundred thousand dollars worth of breeding stock. Wow. And how do you deal with that with the land too? Do you? Yeah, we. Because your farmers. Nyman Ranch. I mean, they have to have a base someplace, mm-hmm. a relative or a friend or something, or rent land or something. Mm-hmm. And, and it. Uh, Many people have jobs other places. They raise a few pigs on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but there are many cases where uh, uh, raising pigs becomes a very substantial part of a diversified farm. Pretty good, uh, you know, income flow. Yeah. So Depending you, on the size, you know. Yeah. So you work with younger farmers and you incentivize well, we, more farmers to get in the business. Uh, well, as you can see, the average age of farmers is... is Was it like 50? 59. Yeah. Um, so the reality is you need, you need new people getting into this. And, um, the other thing is that it shows that what we have to offer by, you know, guaranteed price Mm -hmm. and the way, the way, uh, we raise our livestock is attractive, uh, to younger people. And they can get into this as, as just an enterprise and I mean, almost all their farms have a, they do a number of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they probably raise some crops. They might be raising beef and, and, and pork or maybe even lamb or, uh, you know, so. That is, that is very impressive and much needed because um, the majority of our farmers are, are reaching retirement age. So yeah, uh, we're, <laughs> it'd be really we're, great if we could continue to have food. <laughs> we're, uh. Yeah, we're proud of that, and and like I said, we do a lot of things. We have a scholarship program for the. Uh, uh, these are the, uh, the young people that are the, the children of our farmers, and um, the, these are the these are the people. You know, they probably are going to go to college someplace, but their goal is to come back to the farm, and uh, and so we've we've uh, we've had a lot of customers that have. Uh, help raise money for the scholarship program. Last year we had 39 people apply and we gave out uh, scholarships of, I think it was 130,000. Wow. Where are your farmers located by and large? Are they, you know, yeah. Okay, so the hog farmers are primarily uh, in the upper Midwest where the Corn Belt is, but they go all the way east as far as Pennsylvania. Mm Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, Iowa, and all the surrounding states. Um, and then uh, the beef tends to be a little bit farther west, the Dakotas, Nebraska. There's some in Iowa, Missouri, and so on. Mm-hmm. There's an outlier uh, in Oregon. Uh, and then the lamb is primarily raised in uh, uh, California. Lamb sounds really good to me right now. It's uh, <laughs> the Nyman lamb, if you ever get a chance to... To taste it? To taste it. It's absolutely the best. Well, where could you find that, for instance? Because, I mean, and one of my questions was, where do where do you sell most of your products? Is it to, um, you know, is it to retail, like grocery stores? Or, I mean, you, Nyman was a big supplier for Chipotle at one time, right? Yeah, we are. You still, still are? Yet yeah. Today. Yeah, Ch- uh, Chipotle, Panera, those are, you know, um, those kind of customers. But uh, retail, mm-hmm. uh, a number of grocery stores, I'm sure there are probably some right here in uh, Brooklyn uh, that carry uh, different yeah, definitely. Uh, the, <laughs> the products. Uh, uh, we also have uh, a wide web of, of food distributors that wor- work with food service. Uh, De Braga in uh, in uh, whether well, or not in New Jersey, but they're they're a major supplier to restaurants in the in the New York metro area, and 
you know, so they're the, they're, they have their own salespeople. We work with them, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how the product gets to restaurants. And you'll, you'll find it on the menu often, you know. Okay, well, we're going to just actually have to take a really quick commercial break, um, but we will be back in a minute, so stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th, for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Join us to explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden where you'll taste and imbibe to your heart's content and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Join the party. Tickets are available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with farmer and founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company, Paul Willis. One of the, um, in thinking kind of about the divide, there's a real divide right now between urban and rural America, right? And I'm thinking if you're trying to encourage more younger farmers, I don't know if, um, you know, and the idea of kind of uh, farmers, um, like kids, the next generation leaving, you know, going away to school, maybe coming back to work the land. I'm wondering if you've felt that as a farmer yourself more acutely that like this divide and how you as a company have maybe worked to address that. Well, I was telling you about the scholarship program yeah. and these are, are, this money goes primarily to the, to the uh, family members of, of uh, existing Nyman Ranch farmers. Mm-hmm. And, it, it it does tend, especially livestock production of any scale, it does tend to be a generational thing. You know, it's pretty hard. It takes a lot of money, and and to to have some sort of base, maybe maybe your grandfather and grandmother's farm has some older buildings or something like that. You can start with mm-hmm. uh, it. You know, they're. There are a few cases where there are people that have been urban people that somehow have ended up in a rural area and, and become farmers, but it, it but it's a it's not the, it's not common, right? Um, and what are some of the challenges, the ongoing challenges? Like this is a pretty you can say a tougher time to be a farmer, certainly certainly a dairy farmer, right? <laughs> you guys are not are not in that in that business, but I mean, what are some of the things that you're hearing from your farmers and are you lobbying on those issues? I'm just kind of curious. Well, access to money, yeah, uh, capital. Uh, capital is, is always a challenge. We, uh, we will go as a company, Nyman ranch, go to right, go to the bank, talk to the banker. So they understand what this is about. If necessary, um, we've become well, you know, more known and people know this is a, a real business, you know, it's, yeah. uh, uh, 
you know, that's uh, maintaining the quality and the genetics. Uh, uh, we, we have some small uh, breeding uh, companies that supply breeding stock. Mm -hmm. They're just not as numerous as they were at one time. Really? Uh, just because... There's no demand. I don't know. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what happened. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. You know, so <laughs> we like one type of animal these so days. So we, but but we do a, um, we do a lot of testing. Every farmer that sells pork every week, we pull samples and we we pay our farmers based on the eating quality, and uh, and uh, we're we're constantly looking for the right genetics that's gonna, uh, do, you know, work right in our type of system and mm -hmm. do what we're looking for. Okay. So you think that the biggest challenge is access to capital? Access to capital and land. And land. Um, I land, read... Land, buildings, you know, yeah. equipment, all of it. Just everything. <laughs> all of the inputs <laughs> yeah. required. Yeah, um, So, okay. So now I want to talk about what what um, I think you thought I meant at the beginning, which is the you know the bi the big announcement for Nyman um, you know in the past few years, which of course was the acquisition by Purdue of yeah. the company, and was it 2015? It's, it's three years. Yeah. 16, I believe. Oh, 16. Okay, so um, can you tell us what what happened there? Well. Uh, since I started working with Bill Nyman in 1995, mm -hmm. I've seen at least four different owners. And okay. uh, it's not uncommon for a startup company for this to happen. Somebody starts it up and then they, they need more capital and there's buy-in and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a couple of instances where, where you just needed that capital to come in and there was some venture capital that got involved. And they basically they had controlling interest. I didn't. There it, VC. There was VC funding for Nyman. There was ownership. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, for did like not a, know that. for for like eight years. Wow. And there, uh, there was a, a, a an influx, and then there was another influx. They also bought bought a packing plant, combined all of it together. Okay. And, and it ended up uh, being called the Natural Foods Holding Company. Mm-hmm. And that's what Purdue bought. Okay. Which included a packing plant and all of the Nyman Ranch, everything. Okay. Um, so what the was network the network and so forth? So it was more of a. Um, and when did when did um, so what are the so there've been four owners since '95, and um, Mr. Nyman did he? The original people, yeah. yes, and then he had some partners. Okay. Um, it, it actually started out. It was Nyman. Shell. Oh, okay. Bill Nyman, Orville Shell. Yeah. I just saw a, a program on Frontline about IT and China and everything. Uh huh. And Orville Shell happens to be an expert on China, and he was a featured person was oh. two, two nights ago. Wow. He was a professor at Berkeley. Oh, okay. But he long long gone from the the meat world, you know. Yeah. But he wrote a book called um, Modern Meat way back in the, I think the 80s or something. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the eye opener because he, he didn't know anything about meat or anything. And he wrote, he, he wrote about what he saw as he went around the country. And he went to these, you know, big trade shows and there were lots of, they were selling a lot of uh, antibiotics and food additives and all kinds of things, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and you could see that, that naturally clean raised animals, that, that whole thing was disappearing. There were hormones in, in, in poultry and various things. And I mean, there were some, you know, horrendous cases of uh, early development in kids and. Yeah, issues, the complications. All kinds yeah. of things. That, uh, anyway, that, that just. Uh, Shot your memory? I, yes. I, eye opener. And so uh, Bill uh, decided he wanted to raise clean raised, uh, you know, beef and he had a even a source of a few pigs, but, but anyway, then they had to bring some money in because mm -hmm. as started growing, uh, so a few other partners, then the venture capital came in eventually, eventually. Uh, and, and then uh, there was another round of that. And then that was not like the third yep. group. And, and then ultimately, uh, 
uh, Purdue. And then Purdue. Okay. So what was, I mean, you know, and the company kind of got a little bit of blowback, actually a lot bit, I think, in 2000, when, when, the, when this sort of sale went through. So um, how did your farmers react to the news? Well, uh, I have been actually. I'm sorry to cut you off. So basically, just to go, just to kind of round that up. I mean, there it was a financial decision that was made by the owners of the company at the time to sell because they wanted to get their investment back. Was that kind well, of? Well, they how wanted it works? to make money. They wanted and to make they money. They yeah. did make. Yeah. And, and there was also investment by uh, Iowa Finance Corporation, which was a, a, a state-funded. Uh, I mean, they they. They owned this packing plant, and a lot of these things were bundled together. Eventually, became Natural Foods Holding. Okay. Okay, got it. I mean, it's even more complicated because right. there was a provision where, where some of the early Nyman farmers had some interest in the, in in the packing plant, and because the state required certain farmer buy-in and things like that. Okay. All right. So complicated. There was a business decision to sell. Purdue is like, this is a gem <laughs> they, going to go this way. Well, yes. Uh, uh, they had already purchased Coleman okay. about five years before. And Coleman um, uh, was raising some pork and also some poultry and things like that. Mm -hmm. And some of the people were well familiar with Nyman Ranch, and they're like, we should... We should bring Nyman Ranch into this, and so anyway, what uh, what my position as manager of the pork company and and uh, the founding hog farmer, and you know, I wanted to main, uh, maintain the integrity of what we were doing, and I thought that was really important. Yeah. And and I I, I wanted to stay on with the company to continue, mm -hmm. and and uh, uh, I I personally felt that was welcome. Mm -hmm. They were glad that I was going to stay on because it lended some continuity to the, I mean, I know all these farmers, right? Right. You have the relationships. Yeah. And I think with farmers, especially in other industries, like, that's so important. Yeah. Well, it is. And, and we we do have a very, uh, yeah, it's almost like a family. Yeah. You know. Tight-knit and. Right. And, and that's continued. And, you know, I guess everybody was a bit reluctant at first, you know, but. But um, the pledge was, you know, Nyman Ranch, a great company, where do what you do, you know, keep doing more of it. Maybe we can learn something from you. Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, Purdue will tell you uh, that they have learned a lot from Nyman Ranch. And, and we have, I had a, a, a board of directors, farmer board of directors. Mm -hmm. Purdue now has a whole bunch of farmer councils. Uh, animal welfare and, and changing the, putting windows in their buildings and and uh, even thinking about a, a longer growing chicken and various things and and uh, they've been a kind of a pioneer, a leader in getting antibiotics out of their uh, yeah they uh, they're, they're poultry for they're, yeah the, the their food supply that's been they've really led the way yeah on that um, and, without a doubt it's a hundred percent that's it's impressive and they also started to do that. Like, I mean, they didn't talk about it for a long time, but they started. I went like early two thousands, I think, if not a little sooner. I mean, they were they've really been on. Well, that. it's been a long journey because uh, even even the eggs initially mm -hmm. had uh, uh, antibiotics injected into the egg, and they would like yeah. part of the, uh, you know, and to figure out out how to get all of that out of it, you know, took a lot of time. Yeah, yeah, it was unknown technology. And they also they did a lot of research, you know. And they, I mean, I mm -hmm. think that um, I I interviewed uh, Maren McKinnon a, a while ago, who wrote yeah. Big, Big Chicken, and she wrote a lot about this, um, about kind of the steps that they've, mm -hmm. how they've taken the lead in trying to um, have a more res like a response, like you know, more responsible kind of practices. I would say. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I mean, but they really like. They they proved the business case. So not only did they kind of decide to do the right thing, they 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 made sure that it worked from a financial standpoint, also for various reasons. So I think that's like a powerful case that other companies can use. Um, well, forward. one of the other things is is uh, through this animal care uh, uh, 
they have a, a summit mm -hmm. and invited uh, many of the animal welfare groups to come and meet with them, ASPCA, Humane Society, mm -hmm. and others. And we're really, everybody was, I think, nervous in the beginning. Yeah, those two. So, yeah. But it's turned out to be a, a, a great working relationship because people are talking to each other and everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, they're doing things or we're doing things at Nyman Ranch, and we, we do the same thing. And we've had many of these groups come out to, you know, we, and, and it's still my attitude. If, if you don't see something that, uh, that looks right, we, we want to know about it because we want to do it, do it right. It's right. got to be better for the animals, better for the farmers, better for the environment, mm -hmm. better for the customer. So it hasn't really, it sounds like the acquisition hasn't really changed the operations of the business so much. Is that true? That the way that, uh, Nyman Ranch has been changed a little bit is because as a family business uh, Purdue is willing to take and have a long-term plan mm -hmm. and so we've we've uh, I mean uh, the packing plant has been upgraded uh, I don't know five million dollars or something like this whereas your venture capital people they were they're yeah, not going to do that yeah so if there's been things that we want to do, they've been, yeah, let's... Supportive. Uh, very supportive. Mm -hmm. So access to capital on the business side in that way has been really good. Mm -hmm. And it's been, you. it sounds like you haven't had to, um, I mean, ha have you come on under pressure to make changes and cut, 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 cut costs at no, all? No, no, not really. Because they know, amazing. they know. I mean, we, our goal is to make sure that our farmers stay whole, yeah, and and are are being paid fairly, right. And it, it's, I mean, we talk about it all the time, even to the sales and marketing people. It's your responsibility. You're you're all these farmers are depending on you, mm -hmm. and it's it's. I mean, it's really it's really part of the of the mainstay of the business. Right, it's core to, to what you guys do. Yeah. I still imagine that must not be an easy sell at certain points, or certainly not historically. And I, so you led a lot of that work, right? Just trying to drive the value proposition of farming in this responsible way. Okay. Well, the quality really speaks for itself. You know, there's a there's a dramatic difference in the in the eating experience. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said at food tank even as a meat company we're we're saying you maybe you shouldn't eat as much meat as you do but you should eat better right meat you should support the farmers and the, and the system that's you know that's that's better for everybody right which was one of my questions we've it's been a lot of talk about climate change um especially in the past year with a number of reports um and almost all of them, I think all of them, as a number one recommendation for people for what they can do to fight climate change is to significantly reduce the consumption of, of meat and, and beef specifically. So given that that's 50% of your portfolio by and large, how have you kind of, how have you grappled with with that situation? Well, it's the same thing. The Nyman beef is, is you know, uh, I'd say almost uncomparable. It's it, it's it's excellent. It comes from s smaller ranches. You know the animals have access to uh, uh, pasture, and there um, there's a big contrast to uh, to the big feedlots of Western Kansas and bla I don't know if you've ever seen them, but there's feedlots as far as the eye can see. There's not a blade of grass out there. I have not. Seen Huge that. contrast to. And, and where does the waste go? It, it, it would, we would call it fertilizer, but when you have it too much in one place, it becomes waste. Right. You know, something you're trying to get rid of. So our scale is, is, lends itself to, you know, to be, uh, I, I would say, not a problem. Right. So you have animals walking around the field 
dropping little piles of fertilizer here and there. Fertilizer. Well, there's actually grass. Can you give us a sense of what those numbers look like in terms of the number of industrial feeding um, operations, like maybe just within Iowa? Well, okay, so the the CAFOs, Confined Animal Feeding Operations, is just pigs. Mm -hmm. There's 13,000 in Iowa, as far as we can tell. Yeah, and that's a that's a lot. Uh, there are a lot. They're everywhere, and there's um, there's even talk about um, you know we could have a lot more. Now, what comes along with that? We have the most polluted water of any state in the country. Iowa does. Iowa. I did not realize that. Or we might be 49th. <laughs> But it's bad, and it's, yeah. it's, it comes primarily from uh, excessive uh, runoff into drainage tile, which gets into your open water system. Wow. And, uh, uh, you, you know, this liquid manure is injected into the ground, and then if you get a big rain event, um, it, it gets into the waterway. And, and or excess uh, uh, application of nitrogen and things like this. Mm-hmm. And then... You know, down down the Mississippi it goes, and then you you get the big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a problem. So, uh, so yeah. thirteen thousand uh, CAFOs in Iowa alone, just for hogs. Yeah. And how many? What sort of volume are they producing? Well, the hog kill in the United States is four hundred thousand a day. Wow. Uh, Nyman Ranch with our network of 600 farmers um, is 500 or 5,000, I should say, a week. That is a significant difference. So 400,000 a day compared to 5,000 a week. So we are a tiny drop in the bucket. Right. And uh, we, uh, we don't want to discriminate against small farmers. We'll buy as few as five pigs from a farmer. Wow, that's very small. That's impressive. So... You know, my thinking is, you know, well, sometimes you have a group, but there's a tail end, a few. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, there, you know, we have, we have Nyman farmers that are high school kids. They're yeah. in 4-H or something. Yeah. So we want to be inclusive because that's, uh, sometimes that's where your, your growth comes. You start small and you can work into it. But we have uh, collection points. So... You know, the packing plants in northwest Iowa, not everybody goes there. You have collection point, and you put together semi-loads mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, we have ways of putting those small numbers together. So you, ha- yeah, so you kind of help facilitate the logistics for yeah, the, the farmers to allow to It's very able- complicated, yes. as you can imagine. Yeah, I can I used to work in, in logistics, basically, for, yeah, yeah for, for um, a food startup, and I... I'm familiar <laughs> with the difficulties, so yeah, the challenges. Yeah, of so you got 5,000 head coming from maybe 200 farmers. And you have to Little kind of, groups and everything. Yeah. You know? What's so important, though, to be able to support smaller farmers? I mean, we live in an era of... That's, that's the, really the, the, the really one of the beautiful things about, about what Nyman Ranch is. It affords and, and provides access to market to places like Brooklyn and, and or, you know, different parts of the country to these small farmers that don't live next to a big metro area. Right. Without this, they would have, they would, actually, I don't know how many farmers have told me they, they certainly wouldn't be raising uh, pigs or cattle, and they, more than likely they wouldn't be farming at all without, without Nyman Ranch. That has to be the best testament ever. Uh, I, I always feel good about that. Yeah, that... That I would too. That's that's very that's amazing. Um, okay, so so to to we have to wrap up in just one minute. But basically, your stance is um, in terms of the sustainability to eat meat, to not eat meat, eat meat, eat better meat, eat less meat, eat better meat. Yeah, ask questions. How is it raised? Things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're eating meat and you don't know where it comes from it's probably coming from the commodity system and if you're buying it you're supporting that system yeah it's probably coming from one of those 13,000 farms in Iowa yeah um so and by the way those are those are not owned by farmers for the most part not it who are they owned by they're owned by big companies 
not supporting small farmers on those ones. No. Um, one final question. I think there's one final question. Maybe there's two. <laughs> um, I've had you on for quite a while, so I'm sure you're ready to go. Um, but like any, any big policy changes, we live in a very particular time right now, um, politically speaking, but you know, is there kind of one or two food and agricultural issue that you would really like to see addressed at the federal level in the next year or so? Uh, yes. I'm like, what can the government do for you? Okay. Uh, the farm bill, which probably most people don't know anything about at all, but it's, uh, it's a lot of money mm-hmm. and a lot of subsidies go to farmers. I'm a farmer myself, but the big, the big end of it goes for federal crop insurance. We, I just had an episode on that. Okay. So yes. you know what it is. And yep. The farmer pays something, but the majority is paid by tax Taxpayers. Uh, taxpayers. Mm-hmm. If I was in charge, mm-hmm. I would, I'm asking myself as a taxpayer, what am I getting out of this? And the answer is nothing. Federal crop insurance or subsidies need to be attached to environmental uh, policies and uh, uh, practices that are going to conserve soil and water. So, we need to have something, at least we're going to get some cleaner water or cleaner air out of the deal. And I, I think that that's important to connect those, connect the dots there. I'm For our listeners, because this is a podcast, I am br- smiling broadly <laughs> because I think, <laughs> yes, I wholeheartedly agree. And that is very refreshing coming from a fourth generation farmer because... Hey, I, have, I have another one. Oh, let's have it. All of them. We can, I could stay here okay. forever. Uh, a lot of agricultural enterprises are exempt from the food and uh, from the uh, Clean Air and Clean Water Act. So one of these CAFOs, yeah, they can uh, put out any kind of air they want. Nobody is checking, or water. Nobody's checking. What? They're exempt. Really? Because they're agricultural. They're getting a. It's a big loophole. Wow, I did not know that. I think I should have known that. Um, so you got to close that loophole. I think it should be closed, and it, it at least that whole uh, uh, policy should be re-examined. Right. There. I mean, I there's, for example, when you're combining soybeans, dust comes out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can do much about that. Mm-hmm. It's it's an organic material, and it's, it, it falls on the ground. But when you have CAFOs that are producing um, uh, liquid manure and and pit gases that are, that are toxic coming out of there all all year round, and you've got thirteen thousand of these. There should be some uh, some way of making sure that uh, that some of these things are mitigated to a point. If they're spread out there, they got they have to have cover crops or something, you know. Or, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it needs to be looked at and needs to be done better. And and you probably hear a lot of talk about how uh, carbon sequestration and everything agriculture could be the answer, and I uh, we can a long ways to go on that one. Yeah. But, but well, yeah, I mean it's going to be. I mean it is a major contributor agriculture, which I think people don't realize to greenhouse. Yeah, there's gases. O- over tillage. Mm-hmm. I mean I I just came from Iowa this morning. Drove to Minneapolis. I saw lots and lots of fields on on very hilly that have been plowed up. They're completely bare. There's no cover, no protection at all. So you wind and water erosion. Yeah. And you know you can't really grow stuff without without soil, without healthy soil. Well, it's a it's a very precious commodity, and and it, and it really we really have to uh, take care of it. Yes. We yeah. need we need to have a system that makes soil instead of loses soil. Doesn't that seem like it makes so much sense? <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that is, I really appreciate you sharing those with us. I think that we should, let's do both of those things. <laughs> it's a bit of an uphill battle, um, but I am optimistic if you are, people like you are leading the charge. 
Um, so we are going to have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today, Paul. This was a real treat. <laughs> well, it's a, a treat for me to be on, and I always like coming to Brooklyn. You know? It's pretty cool, right? Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, thank you so much. Um, and I have to next next time you're in town, I would love to have you come back on, and we can talk about our lobbying strategy for making some of these changes. Great. <laughs> All right, thanks. Eating Matters is produced with help from Julia Devon and Jessica Duncan. Our show engineer is Cheat Paul, and Tim and music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liu, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>